Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. I'm going to open up this morning's the little story about a Christian man uh, named Rich Imerdino. So Rich Imerdino was traveling into Manhattan on uh, the morning of September 11th, 2001, uh, going to his office. Um, His office building was located uh, not far from the Twin Towers. And uh, when the North Tower was hit, fellow workers uh, crowded around his desk to look outside the window um, to see everything that had happened. And they watched as the ensuing fire exploded into an inferno. And then they heard the, des- the desperate cries of help from some of those who were hanging out of windows, and they all felt completely helpless and powerless. And then suddenly into their view sped the second airplane. And they gasped when that plane took aim at the South Tower and hit its target right on. And there was a collective audible gasp. And then uh, one fellow worker who knew of Rich's Christian faith uh, asked Rich, uh, rather sarcastically, he said, okay, Mr. Imordino, where is your God now? And Rich responded this way. He said, my God is in the same place today that he was in the day his son died on Calvary's cross. He's on his throne in heaven. See, as tragic and awful as the events of that day were, Rich understood something of the providence of God. He understood that nothing catches God by surprise, that God is always God and is always in control, that he works in every single event and circumstance in the universe, even through the evil actions of others, to somehow guide all of it toward his good purposes. See, this doctrine of God's providence is peppered throughout all of Scripture from uh, creation in Genesis 1 um, all the way to the the heavens and the earth and all the way as God guides everything to uh, the creation of the new heavens and new earth that we read about in Revelation. So let me give you a definition of what I mean when I use the word providence. A definition of providence, and if you have your app, uh, you could uh, find this definition in there as well. So here's a definition of providence. Providence is God's gracious oversight over every aspect of the created world, whereby he orchestrates every detail in nature and every free action of man to bring about exactly what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants, where he wants, for the good of humanity and for the purpose of his glory. So to believe that God is provident 
is to believe that God has a plan for your life, that he has a plan for my life, that he has a plan for the entire world, and that he's accomplishing his plan by fitting together all of our free decisions and free actions, the good and the bad, the private and the public, the the righteous and the evil. And the story of Joseph is one of the most dramatic examples of God's providence in all of Scripture. See, Joseph was a man who was well aware of God's providence. He knew that God was with him in his highs, and he knew that God was with him in his lows, and he firmly believed that God's invisible hand was guiding him along every season of life. So this morning, as we turn to Genesis 50, the final chapter in the book of Genesis and the closing chapter of Joseph's story, we're going to examine this idea of God's providence. We're going to see how it made a difference, all the difference in Joseph's life and how it could make a difference in your life and mine. Now, what an incredible and life-giving journey these past months have been going uh, through the story of Joseph. Say amen if you've been blessed by God's word so far in Genesis. See, even more incredible, though, is the fact that I looked at some at the past three, four years, and in the past three, four years, we actually uh, covered almost every single chapter in the book of Genesis with, with, through different sermon series. We covered creation to the fall, to the flood, to Noah, to Babel, and then Abraham, and then Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. Um, but for the sake of review, since we're coming to the end here, and to truly appreciate where the story of Joseph kind of fits into uh, the bigger context of Scripture um, and, uh, and God's redemptive plan, uh, we're going to take a look at a little uh, background video provided by the Bible Project. Let's look. Book of Genesis, which is made up of these two main parts. And the first part begins in the garden where we watch humanity spiral downward in self-destruction. And it ends in the Tower of Babel where a rebellious humanity is scattered by God. Then the second part of Genesis zooms in and focuses on just one family. And right in the middle is this story that links the two parts of Genesis together and helps us understand what the whole book is all about. So how do we get from the Tower of Babel to the story here in the middle? Well, after the scattering at Babel, there's this genealogy, and it follows one of the tribes all the way down to this one guy named Abram. You probably know him as Abraham. And God starts making all these promises to Abraham, like he's going to bless him and give him a ton of kids. And he says that through him and his family, all the nations of the earth are now going to find God's blessing. So basically, God is trying to restore humanity back to the goodness of the garden and to his original intentions for the world. So it's like his rescue plan for humanity. And that's why the whole second half of Genesis is about this one family. And so you have, you have Abraham, and then he has his son Isaac, who has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And to each generation, God renews his promise to bless them and all nations through them. So because of this promise to use this family to rescue the world, it's pretty easy to read these stories as examples of how to be a good person. But actually, for the most part, this family is totally dysfunctional. So for example, let's go back to Abraham. This whole story is about God giving him and his wife Sarah a family, but two different times. He basically gives Sarah away to other men by denying that she's even his wife. 
And then Sarah gets impatient about having a son, and so she makes Abraham sleep with her servant girl, which then causes all of these other problems in the family. So they get really old, and you begin to think that there's no way they're going to have a kid of their own. But then, miraculously, they do. It's Isaac. And Isaac, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and it seems like things are going pretty good. But Jacob... The younger brother wants the family's inheritance, which belongs to Esau, the older brother. So he devises a plan where he's going to steal it from his father, Isaac, who at this point in the story is now old and blind. Which who does that horrible stealing from your blind father? Yeah, and then he just takes off. So Jacob goes on from there to have 12 sons, big family. But Jacob loves his 11th son, Joseph, way more than all the others. And so he gives him the special technicolor dream coat. And his brothers, because of this, come to hate him. So much so that they plan on killing him. But they don't. They instead just sell him as a slave down in Egypt. Now, while in Egypt, through this crazy series of events, Joseph goes from being in a prison cell to becoming the second in command there. And so later on, the the whole Middle East falls into this food shortage. And Joseph's brothers, they come down to Egypt looking for food. And then when they get there, who should they find as the ruler of the whole land? It's Joseph, that guy they sold into slavery. But he actually saves them from starving to death. And so here you have it. These are the great-grandchildren of Abraham who have done this heinous act to their brother, But God has transformed their evil into something good. And that's exactly what Joseph says here in the last paragraph of the entire book. He says, you guys planned all of this for evil, but God planned it for good to save people's lives. Now, these words, they conclude the book because they actually summarize the message of the whole story so far. Humans keep choosing evil, and we are thinking they're, they're screwing up God's plan, but he keeps turning their evil back into good. And somehow, he's going to use this family to restore humanity back to the garden. So that's the book of Genesis. But we still don't know how exactly he's going to use this family to bring us back to the garden. Well, yeah, but this is just the first book. So that's what the rest of the Bible sets out to answer. So there's a bit of a background, by the way. That's called the Bible Project. Uh, they have uh, Bible. Uh, they have videos like that, overviews over all the books of the Bible and stuff. Highly recommend checking it out. It's a really great resource. So then this morning, after all that, we come to our final chapter, Genesis chapter 50. Now remember, from last week, we saw Jacob pronounce uh, blessings and curses uh, on some of his sons, and he prophesied that Messiah was going to come through the lineage of Judah. And that chapter then ended with Jacob's death. So this is where Genesis chapter 50 picks up. And Joseph at this point is about 56 years old. Remember, he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. Now he's about 56 years old. So starting in Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. So Hebrew custom was to bury the dead. Egyptian custom was to embalm the dead or, or mummify the dead. And after embalming Jacob's body, then there was a, a period of, of seventy days of mourning. And out of love and respect for Joseph and for 
uh, Jacob and the family, the, you see the Egyptians from Pharaoh on down feeling that loss and grieving with the whole family. Verse 4, And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I, had, that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Now why did Jacob make his sons swear that they would bury him in the land of Canaan? See, because despite all of Jacob's flaws and faults, and failures, he believed God's promise that the land one day would belong to his descendants. Like Joseph, he believed that God in his providence would somehow multiply the people and bring them back to the promised land. Verse 7, so Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. so, So there's this massive funeral procession going from Egypt to the land of Canaan, about 200, 250 miles or so. Now, this entourage included uh, Joseph's family, it included the families of the 11 brothers, it included Jacob's household, and it included countless Egyptian servants and dignitaries. And there were also a bunch of chariots and, and horsemen. Now, there's a little bit of a prophetic allusion here in this passage because uh, to the Exodus that happens in about 400 years from now because here the chariots and the Egyptians are traveling with the Israelites, but during the time of the Exodus, the chariots and the Egyptians are going to be chasing the Israelites. Verse 10, when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So this trip to, to Canaan um, is a pretty important trip. It, it shows just how important the land is uh, to Jacob as one of the descendants of Abraham. In fact, three of the promises that God made to Abraham are, are uh, referenced in this, in this great um, procession. See, back in Genesis 12, God said to, at that point, childless Abram, he said, I will make of you a great nation. 
And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To your offspring I will give this land. So three promises. Offspring, land, and being a blessing to other nations. And here in this passage we see the beginning of those. You see uh, the, the beginning of Abraham's many descendants as a bunch of them travel to go and bury Jacob. You also see that they're burying him in the land of Canaan in a, in a lot that they owned, showing that the, the tomb there serves as a foothold and, and a claim uh, to the promised land that they'll one day inhabit. And then also you see the, you're reminded that this huge company of Egyptians with them goes to remind us that Joseph was a huge blessing to the Egyptians, to the, uh, the nation of Egypt, because if it wasn't for him, they'd have been dead. He saved them and he saved many others from the famine. So Jacob's burial here in the promised land testifies to his faith that his covenant God will indeed, by his great providence, fulfill his promise of giving them a land. So they then make their way back to Egypt. But now that Jacob is dead and buried, his death begins to stir the guilty consciences of the 11 brothers. See, the brothers fear that Joseph still wants to get revenge and get even with them for what they did to him almost 40 years ago. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. See, they're wondering if Joseph is holding a grudge against them. Because now with Jacob gone, uh, Joseph can declare open season on his brothers. Verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So you know why Joseph weeps here? For one, the brothers are fabricating a lie, saying that Jacob said something he never actually said. But the reason Joseph is weeping here is because after all of these years of kindness and forgiveness and favor toward them, they have yet to truly understand and embrace the forgiveness that Joseph offered them. They have yet to embrace his love and his goodness. Now, don't miss the connection here. See, if Joseph grieves because his brothers haven't accepted his forgiveness, can you imagine how it must break the heart of God when he forgives us and then when he declares us righteous in Christ and yet we continue to live in guilt and shame and condemnation over the things we've done? See, if you've repented of your sins and if you've received Christ as your Lord and your Savior, then your sins, your failures, your mistakes, past, present, and future are forgiven. There, so you've got to stop living in that dark shadow of condemnation. If God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. You're loved, you're accepted, you're redeemed, you're complete, you're saved, you're secure. Live out of that. God wants you to know and accept that truth. And Joseph wished his brothers accepted that truth as far as their relationship was concerned. But they're afraid of Joseph, and they'll do anything to appease him. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. 
Now, you can't help but wonder here if they uh, realize that they are literally fulfilling the dream that Joseph had all those years earlier that his brothers were going to bow to him. See, the previous times they bowed to him, this wasn't the first time, but the previous times they bowed to him, they were bowing to the Egyptian prime minister whose identity was unknown. They didn't know that was Joseph at the time. But now they're bowing to him, knowing full well that it's Joseph, and that's fulfilling his dream to the letter. So what's Joseph's response then in all of this? Well, his response really forms the core and heart of this chapter, starting in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? See, Joseph doesn't want his brothers to fear. He has no desire to play God by by dishing out the divine justice that belongs only to God. He believes that God was involved in every single detail of his life, even the really bad stuff, and he already forgave his brothers. He holds no grudges. He doesn't harbor any bitterness. So here's a 50-something-year-old man who experienced some of the worst that life can throw at a person, and yet he has complete peace with his past. He was the victim of hostility, He was the victim of rejection, the victim of slavery, the victim of false imprisonment, the victim of despair, and all of this as a result of his brothers. And yet he tells them to not be afraid because he humbly recognizes that God permitted his lot in life, that God allowed it all to happen. See, because Joseph is finite, he's not about to to, uh, assume that the infinite God doesn't know what he's doing. And there's a lesson here. For us, a truth that we see, that we can have peace with the past because God's providence releases us from bitterness. We can have peace with the past because God's providence releases us from bitterness. See, the older we get, it seems the harder it is to have this kind of freedom from bitterness. See, Joseph's now in his mid-50s, and he could have grown even more and more bitter as the years went by because he's now had that many more years to dwell on all of the injustices and and all of the injuries against him. And that's what seems to happen to to so many of us. We, We hold on to things from the past, and then we spend years replaying them over and over and over again in our minds, and we grow angry, we grow bitter, We grow short-tempered, and then as the years go on, we run the risk of turning into what Chuck Swindoll calls a bitter old person wrapped in a blanket of anger, spewing forth profanity, pouring over albums of wrongs done, and feeding on the dregs of would-be memories. See, but the truth is that no child of God ever needs to become that. None. When you begin to view your life through the lens of divine providence, trusting that God is good and that God is with you at all times, that he's with you in all places and that he's guiding you with his perfect wisdom toward his good purposes, then you begin to view all of the pain and wounds from the past as purposeful, that God will use them. If you've been rejected by people you love, neglected by people you trusted, mistreated by people that you've befriended. If things haven't worked out in your life as you'd hoped they would, don't lose heart. Don't get angry. Don't get stuck in a prison of bitterness. Many of you know the name Nelson Mandela. He spent 27 years 
in prison for standing up against apartheid in South Africa. While recounting his release from prison, he said this, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. See, he chose not to allow his life to be built on a bitter root. And the tree of Joseph's life bore no bitter fruit. And may the trees of our lives refuse to bear bitter fruit also. See, God's providence overrides and overrules even the most wicked and evil deeds done against us. We can have peace with the past because God's providence releases us from bitterness. Then Joseph continues his response to his brothers in verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See, Joseph understands something of the mysterious providence of God. He realizes that what his brothers meant for evil, God overruled and used it for good. Though God didn't cause the evil, though he's not the author of evil, though he's not the one responsible for the evil, he did allow it and then he made it work for the good to save many people. And Joseph was able to stand above his circumstances, not be crushed underneath his circumstances because he trusted in God's good providence. So here's the second lesson for us, the second truth I want us to get. We can have joy in the present because God's providence reassures us that there's purpose to suffering. We can have joy in the present because God's providence reassures us that there's purpose to suffering. As with Joseph, God can veto evil and make it work for good on your behalf, on my behalf. And if you're one of his children, he promises to do just that. That's what we're told in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28 says, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. All things, the insults, the rejection, the pain, the abuse, the injustices, the broken relationships, the addictions, the self-inflicted problems for the child of God, he promises to use all of it purposely for our good and for his glory. Each of us can have joy in the here and now because of the overarching and overruling hand of God in our lives, knowing that no matter what evil others might bring against us, God will take that, spin it, and use it for our good. In Joseph's case, the good that God orchestrated was the salvation of the people and the preservation of his promise to Abraham. And God's like a master chess player, right? Using the free actions of people to bring about his perfect will and purposes. I mean, think about how God used every single small thing in Joseph's life to bring about good. You could kind of follow this sequence going all the way back to the beginning, right? If Joseph was never captured by his jealous brothers and sold to some slave traders, he never would have went to Egypt, 
If Joseph never went to Egypt, he never would have been sold to Potiphar. If Joseph was never sold to Potiphar, he never would have been falsely accused of rape by Mrs. Potiphar. If he was never falsely accused of rape, he never would have been put in prison. If he was never put in prison, he never would have met Pharaoh's butler and baker. If he never met the, ba- the butler and the baker, he never would have had the chance to interpret their dreams. If he never had the chance to interpret their dreams, he never would have had the chance to meet Pharaoh and interpret Pharaoh's dream. And if he never interpreted Pharaoh's dream, he never would have become the prime minister of Egypt. If he never became the prime minister of Egypt, he never would have prepared for the famine to come. And if he never prepared for the famine, then the Egyptians and his family back in Canaan would have died in the, fa- in the famine. And if Joseph's family died in the famine, then Israel would never become a nation. If Israel never became a nation, Messiah would have never, never come forth. If Messiah never came forth, then Jesus never came. And if Jesus never came, then we're all dead in our sins and without hope in this world. But God, see, that's how God's good and gracious and glorious providence works. Brothers and sisters, your lives are not in the hands of man. Your lives are in the hands of God, who overrules all things for his glory. So will you trust that God knows what he's doing and that every single detail of your life matters to him? Whether you see it in this life, whether you see it in glory, there will be a great reversal of the terrible pain and circumstances of your life. God's good purposes for you are so much greater than all the evil that fights against you. All that is evil will be overruled and will be turned into good. Wrong will become right. Negative will be transformed into positive. Midnight will be replaced by daylight. And all of your dances with disaster will be eclipsed by your joyful jumping of delight. Trust in God's good providence to bring good out of all of it. Because ultimately, we can't call something good or bad until God has actually finished with it. And we don't know when that will be. It's like the story of two school teachers who met back on campus after some years of not seeing each other, and then their conversation went something like this. The first lady said to her friend, I've gotten married since we last met. The friend said, oh, that's good. And to which she replied, oh, well, I don't know about that. My husband is twice as old as I am. The friend said, oh, well, that's bad. And she said, well, I don't know about that. He's worth a million dollars. She said, oh, well, that's good. She said, oh, well, I don't know about that. He doesn't give me two cents. Oh, well, that's bad. The friend says, well, I don't know about that. He did build me a $200,000 house. And the friend said, oh, well, that's good. And then she said, well, I don't know about that. It burned down last week. The friend said, oh, well, that's bad. And then she said, well, I don't know about that. He was in it. The point being, we can't say a thing is good or bad until God is finished with it. See, God works in your life, in my life, intentionally, strategically, purposefully, progressively, continuously, always promising to accomplish the best that can be accomplished for our greatest good and for his greatest glory. We can have peace with the past because God's providence releases us from bitterness. We can have joy in the present 
because God's providence reassures us that there's purpose to our suffering. And then we come to the closing passage of the book of Genesis. So we pick this up in verse 22, and there's about a 50-something year gap between where 21 ends and where verse 22 picks up. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And just like that, the story of Joseph comes to an end. He died, he was embalmed, he was put in a coffin in Egypt. But even in his dying request, he showed faith in the providence of God, for he knew that a time was coming when the descendants of Abraham would multiply to the millions and be forced out of Egypt, because Egypt wasn't their homeland. Canaan was their homeland. God promised the land to them, and Joseph died in full confidence, knowing that God was going to make good on that promise. And what I find really fascinating here is that in everything in Joseph's life, out of everything, that you could look at and highlight in Joseph's life, his resilience, his integrity, his wisdom, uh, his patience, his leadership. The New Testament book of Hebrews focuses only on one thing to remember him by. In Hebrews 11, where you have that great uh, hall of faith, of all those faithful Old Testament characters, here's what it says about Joseph, Hebrews 11:22. It says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So Joseph saved an entire nation. He rescued his family. He endured incredible hardship. And the most heroic thing he ever did was in his dying breath, he proclaimed such trust in God that he believed God would rescue his family from a captivity that didn't even exist yet. See, Joseph lived until the very end, trusting in God's good providence. He had faith knowing that God was going to make good on all of his promises. So he looked to the future in complete hope and confidence. And here's the final lesson for us. We can have hope for the future because God's providence reminds us that he never forgets his promises. We can have hope for the future because God's providence reminds us that God never forgets his promises. Joseph lived in hope. Joseph died in hope and he was eventually buried in the promised land in hope, hope that God would fulfill his promise of a homeland for his people. And in the same way, you and I as children of God have hope for the future because of God's promises. Jesus promised that he's going to prepare a place for you, a place where he will gather his children in his father's kingdom and throw the most lavish banquet, a place where there's not going to be any suffering, any tears, any depression, any fears, any worries, any cancers, any sicknesses, nothing, no anxiety. So we wait. We wait like Joseph and the Israelites waited for Canaan. We wait for God to restore paradise on earth. And we wait in hope and in hopeful anticipation, confidently knowing that all of that will come true and he will make all things new. So with our confidence fixed 
on God's providence. We see beyond the temporary pain of our current problems of the here and now, and and we trust that God is working all of our hardships, all of our heartaches, all of our pain, all of our problems. He's working all of this to produce for us and in us an eternal inheritance that's beyond our imagination. Church, are you comforted today by the fact that we have a provident God like this? See, when we begin to grasp his providential rule over our lives, we find peace with the past. We're able to be released and find freedom from all of our bitterness and unforgiveness. And when we grasp his gracious providence, we find joy in the here and now, knowing that behind every single shadow of suffering, God is at work, working out his good purposes. And the more that we trust his wise providence, the more we can look into the future with hope, knowing that everything God promised will come to pass. So here's the bottom line. The key to a life well-lived is confidence in God's providence. The key to a life well-lived is confidence in God's providence. Joseph's life was characterized by faith, by integrity, by forgiveness, by hope, by love, but not because of how great Joseph was, simply because of how great Joseph's God was. And to truly live a life like that, a well-lived life, we must trust in God's providence. So let us close this book of beginnings absolutely convinced and conscious of God's providence. The more you're conscious of it, the more you're aware of God's providence in your life, the more it can be said of you, as one old pastor said, B.B. Warfield, he said, everywhere you will see God in his mighty stepping, everywhere you will feel the working of his mighty arm and the throbbing of his mighty heart. And don't ever, ever doubt for a moment that God can't redeem your suffering. Think about it. God took the very, very worst thing in all of human history and brought about the very best results for humanity out of that. God took the death of his perfect, infinite son to provide the way of salvation for countless sinners. He won't waste a moment of your suffering. He never makes mistakes. In the 1920s, there was a man, young man by the name uh, A.M. Overton, And Mr. Overton became a pastor at First Baptist Church in Baldwin, Mississippi. And he was there for 12 years. Twelve years later, his wife, Mrs. Overton, was pregnant with their fourth child. But when it came time for delivery, there were some complications, and both Mrs. Overton and the child died. And during the funeral, the preacher who was officiating the funeral noticed that Pastor Overton was writing something down on paper during, um, during the service. And after the service, the minister asked him about what he was writing. And the pastor handed him the paper with a poem he'd just written. And the poem was called, He Maketh No Mistake. Listen to the words. My father's way may twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache. But in my soul, I'm glad to know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray. My hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for he doth know the way. Though night be dark and it may seem that day will never break, 
I'll pin my faith, my all in him. He maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see. My eyesight's far too dim. But come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by the mist will lift and plain it all he'll make. Through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one mistake. See, this will be the testimony of every single child of God, that when we finally get to heaven, we get to look back over the pathway of life and see that through all of the twists and turns, through all of the detours, God was always there with us through all of it. But until that morning comes, until the sunlight of God's presence fills our faces, we move on in the confidence that we have a good and gracious and provident God who's working all things together for the good of those who love him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. And Lord, we acknowledge that our finite minds can't fully grasp your infinite mind, your infinite ways. And Lord, how uh, you're able to balance our free will with your sovereign purposes is just completely beyond us. And Lord, um, that just uh, serves to make us even more in awe of your greatness. And Lord, we are thankful. We're so thankful that we have this promise that you will work all things together for our good, for those um, of us who are your children. And Lord, if there's anybody in here who would not say that they're a child of God, Lord, even in the stillness of these moments in the next song, Lord, that I pray that the prayer of their heart would simply be, save me, Lord Jesus, for I am a sinner. And give me new life. Lord, we thank you that you used the worst thing in human history, the death of your son, to bring about the best results for any human. Lord, our eternal salvation. Lord, help us to see your invisible hand when we're going through difficulties. Lord, help us to remember that you are just as present in the darkness, and that you're just as present in the valleys as you are when uh, we're in the mountaintop experiences. God, we love you, and we trust that you are working all things together for our good. Thank you for, um, what a, thank you for your word. What a beautiful, a beautiful journey it's been uh, going through the story of Joseph and well, watching you orchestrate every single event in his life to bring about your good purposes. And Lord, we trust that you are doing the same with each one of our lives. Lord, so help us to live in light of your providence, knowing that every decision we make, every choice we make, everything we say, Lord, that um, you are using that. You're using that for our good. You're using that for your purposes. And Lord, we we trust you, so give us peace. Give us all the, the joy that we need in the present, Lord, and we look forward in hope for that day 
where there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, no more anxiety, no more worries. The day when we could worship Jesus face to face. Lord, but until that day comes, strengthen us by your spirit. And Lord, give us victory for all the battles that we face. All God's children said, amen.